0: Hey, welcome back, or welcome for the first time. Very exciting. We are now on Spotify and Apple podcasts and Google, so we can officially say find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying voice notes on any of these platforms, please follow us and share with a friend who you think might like it too. This week, we are talking about a topic that is evergreen anti Semitism, specifically anti Semitism on campus. And we're gonna start with a cold open with Miriam's son about where he wants to go to college. Hi. Hey, Hi Nazi.
1: Nazi, where do you wanna go to college? Ah, uh, it's a good question. He doesn't just want to go to college. Okay. Tell him which college you wanna go to.
0: I wanna go to, <laughs> wanna go to West Point. Whoa. Oh. You wanna join the army?
1: What's your career ambition?
2: <laughs> okay, okay. I wanna be a military tactician. A military tactician. Yeah, but it Where, sounds cool when you just say general.
0: I like mil- – to be honest, I think military tactician sounds pretty Very cool. cool. It sounds more interesting to me than general because I don't know what a general does.
3: Yeah, that sounds really but cool. But
0: military tactician, I'm like, he's smart.
2: But yeah. Like, if you're a military tactician, you're a smart guy Was a desk job. And then if Somewhere. you're a general, okay – you're probably an old guy, okay?
0: Probably
3: yeah. in his 60s with a yeah. German shepherd.
2: Are so you going to wear a lot a of
3: belt. medals on your chest?
0: You're painting a picture that I think sounds really <laughs> accurate. If you say general, I think guy in his 60s with a German shepherd. Like, yeah. you're you're right on track. I'm a like Dwight, bald guy. You're thinking but, D. Eisenhower. Oh. But, like, IDF I mean, or U.S. Army? Uh probably the US army.
3: Okay. Well, that's West Point, right? Yeah, and
1: that's
3: right.
2: It's also hard to get in cuz like you need a 4.0 g g mm-hmm. I can't I say GPA, TA, and you need um a uh, 1300 and like 10 on your
0: SATs. Yeah, you'll be fine.
2: And I need a letter of recommendation from Congress.
0: Okay, well that's going to be the mm-hmm. hardest one. You need to get an internship stat
2: stat he's 12 years old but <laughs> i'll really figure it out is to figure out what to invest in the stock market
3: he's really funny yeah he's a good can't kid can't believe how big his that's crazy mom
2: you might want to use my headphones
1: good night my love good
0: night. hey everyone welcome to voice notes i'm shira and these are my friends miriam and devora this week, we're going to give you a little tidbit about our week just to get to know us a little better. So my tidbit is that tomorrow is my birthday.
2: Well, happy wait, birthday. Wait,
0: hold on. I'm um, sure. Thank do you have any you. fun plans for your birthday? So I'm going to do something with my husband. My cousin's going to come over in the morning and I don't know, we're like taking a rug over to my uncle's house. Like there's not a lot of really exciting stuff going on, but I think we like might go get a scone and a cup of tea at this place I like. So like We'll see. I'm keeping it. I'm keeping it low key. I'm keeping expectations low because I just, I just need something low key. That's that fine. fine. That's it. All right. That's what I got. Miriam, go for it.
1: Um. So I spent all of Sunday watching, binging the new season, the second season of Reacher. It was really good. I love Lee Child's books, and I'm thrilled about the prime TV adaptation because the actor is actually. Big enough to play the character, unlike Tom Cruise in the movie version. Actually, Miriam at her staggering
3: five foot one or whatever you
1: are <laughs> five foot one four eleven. Okay, that <laughs> takes one to no one. Jack Reacher is six five in the books. He just oh. has to be big. That's just the he way has it is. to be big and menacing. And Tom Cruise is that is- like
3: intrinsic to the character that he be yes, big and menacing? Yes,
1: okay, yes, fair, yes, fair. yes. All,
3: All right. right. Uh, okay, Sephora. Hi, I'm Devora, and uh, my uh, fun – well, actually, I have two things. One is that I'm going to see the new Mean Girls movie this weekend with some friends, and I almost never go to movies, so that's exciting. Ooh, my sister's I'm coming excited too. for you. We've been planning this for like a year, my sister and I, so I'm excited. Uh, the other thing that I'm enjoying right now is this book. Um, so I work in the publishing industry, as I, as I mention every week here, um, and uh, one of the perks of that job is that I sometimes get access to books that have not gone on sale yet. So a friend of mine in the industry sent me a, a um, advanced reading copy for a book that's coming out. And it was just such a delight of a read. It was both very fun and funny and kind of romantic while also being like, just ended on such a note of existential dread. That doesn't <laughs> sound fun. I know. <laughs> but it was just like this really unique combination of feelings. Um, so the book is called The Ministry of Time. And it's by Kayleen Bradley. It's coming out in May. And um I won't describe the whole plot here because that'll take too much time, but I will say that the publicist who sent it to me described it as Outlander. Sing me a song of a lass that is gone. Say, could that last be I? Meets Severance. And it was, that's a completely accurate although very strange-sounding description for this book.
0: No, it's quite a combo. And I like the uh, romance meets existential dread (laughs) as your sweet spot. I
3: think it's going to be a successful book. because I want to read it. And it's very
0: impressive that you got your advance copy. So no extra one.
3: There's a cruise currently going on, a nine-month cruise around the world. And one of the publishing companies has now paid for an influencer to join this cruise for a few weeks uh, to read books and talk about them while on the cruise as like a promotional...
1: You might get that job? I want that job.
3: I know, right? So everyone in publishing is like, oh my God, if they have some money for this, they have money to give us raises. That sounds so Uh-oh, fun. I would sweat. want that
0: job, but I read so slowly. They'd be like, are you done yet? I'd be like, I'm in the middle. I'm, I'm <laughs> yeah.
3: you be like, you need to pay me for a few more weeks on this cruise. <laughs> I'd be like on chapter two. So that's, that's be the like, so far publishing <laughs> industry tea right now is like, where did the money come for this influencer to go on a cruise?
0: <laughs> okay. So, and I'll just throw in our usual that Miriam is a professor of Jewish history and as you just heard, Devorah works in publishing
1: and PR. Before we, we jump into whatever we talk about this week. Oh, right. Yes. I, Mira- say, okay. yeah, I do want to say um, that we have gotten feedback. We usually get feedback from our episodes. But since our episode last week about abortion and reproductive care, we've gotten each of us as individuals have gotten messages from friends and family members um, and people we know of women sharing really, really personal stories of pregnancies that had to be ended or pregnancies that ended very sadly, you know, women who, who miscarried or had molar pregnancies or had to have a D&E at 14 weeks. And I, I think this shows how common this really is, how how much we don't talk about these stories. A friend shared a story with me, a longtime friend that I never knew um, so these these stories are really, really common, and it really goes to show the necessity of having access to proper reproductive care. And I really hope that if you listen to that episode, that you really consider that this should be a priority for you when you go to vote. I hope that you do choose to go vote and exercise your right as an American at the ballot box, and that you make this issue a priority for you when you choose who to vote for whom to vote for uh because i i think this is really a matter of pekuach and um and i i hope that you take it seriously
0: thank you so much yeah so
1: if you want to listen to that episode
0: it was last week's we'll put a link in the show notes to our own episode <laughs> so
3: or just scroll down from where you're currently listening
0: yeah so this week we have Another topic to discuss. We are back to our normal vibe, uh, talking about you know, anti-Semitism.
3: The always hilarious,
1: always never hilarious. Runs out of new Always
3: hilarious.
1: Evergreen, so always ever, topical. Evergreen never goes out Exactly. A little black dress.
0: Yeah. A little black dress. Never goes off. Well, outside. Coco
1: Chanel was also a Nazi sympathizer, so there you go. There you go. Always you go. topical. Oh no. Was she really? <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, she right. You didn't know. No, this
0: is so disappointing for my bougie, bougie heart.
3: But there's so many awesome designers who are Jewish and not Nazis. Oh no. <laughs> Diane Van Furstenberg.
1: She's the one with the wrap dress, right?
3: Fact check, Diane Van Furstenberg's mother survived the Holocaust.
0: It reminds me of this quote from Alex Edelman. He said uh, that people tell him all the time how timely his show is. And he said, uh, if you want to write a show that's evergreen, write a show about how ice cream is good or anti-Semitism is a problem.
3: Because it's <laughs> those good. will never disappear.
4: Look, who would have guessed that anti-Semitism, a topic that was so relevant in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, early 90s, early 2000s, mid-2010s, would once again rear its head in such a timely fashion for my comedy solo show. But it's back and bigger than ever. Oh, my God, is it? Boy, I mean, who could have guessed? It's like if I... (laughs) It's like if I decided to do a show about Elton John right now, you know, like he's so, or Taylor Swift, it's so huge. My next show is going to have to be about Taylor Swift, surely, a movement anti Semitism, Taylor Swift, how good ice cream is.
0: Anyway, so back to this week, we wanted to talk about anti Semitism on campus because it is something that is rearing its ugly head and has been large on our minds, large on my mind, especially, I think, because My daughter is a junior in high school and she is starting the college admissions process. And up until around October 7th, we were thinking maybe an Ivy League because she happens to be the type of kid who would do well there. Thank God her little brain was built for school. And that was really something we were considering. And now I don't know. I'm really feeling like... I mean, listen, it's ultimately her decision. And this is something that she's old enough that she has to go where she wants to go and obviously where she gets in, blah, blah, blah. But the whole conversation about to Ivy or not to Ivy is uh, it's a lot different than it was in September, than it was last year, than it was, you know, than it was when I was applying to college or when my mom went to Harvard in the 70s. Maybe she'll go to UCLA and live at home and whatever crazy things are happening on campus, she'll be able to come home and get a hug from her mom and dad and say something scary happened today on campus. Or maybe she'll go to Stern and be with a lot of other Jews and just feel safe in that YU nest. So I don't know. We'll see. This is kind of, it's big in our minds right now. It's big in her mind. It's something that's going on for her and a lot of her friends right now. And... Yeah, that's where we're at. So, we wanted to talk about it.
3: Yeah, I feel like it's something that we need to understand what's going on there just because I don't know, when I first we first started talking about this, my first instinct as as it so often is is to think, well, maybe we're being paranoid, right? Maybe we're blowing a few small incidents out of proportion. So I start Googling and I looked up just literally the words like campus anti-Semitism or campus and the number of articles that were popping up, not just the big national stories that we all heard about, but a lot of like on campus, you know, camp on campus uh, newspapers. And the number of even things that like didn't even make the news because they weren't even big enough, but just story after story piling up of Jewish students and Israeli students, anyone displaying any kind of Jewish, you know, overtly Jewish signs, whether it's a Star of David necklace or a kippah or whatever, being harassed, being chased, being locked in a library in one famous story, being assaulted on campus and hit, uh, yelled at, um, just one story after another. And I... I had to like, I kind of felt like forced to say, you know what, like, I don't think this is people being paranoid. There's something going on here. Something really dark, like something has been unleashed. Some kind of fever is brewing. I don't really know. I think there's like a a lot of different components here of what's inspiring it, what's allowing it to build, what why it's not being shut down properly. I think it's just like this weird, perfect storm of elements that's I would love to say it's unprecedented. I don't know that it is. I think maybe it's very mm-hmm. precedented, but it's very it's very scary. It's very scary. I'm hearing stories
0: from Shlucha, friends of mine, who are Repsons at Chabad on Campus Centers. This is my friend Leba at NYU. And
5: another student responded, don't you get it? It's not about Israel. We just hate you. We just want you dead. And in like the week after October 7th and a little bit after that, like a lot of my students also felt a general feeling of like a loss almost of these friends that they thought they had who even before the war happened even before there was any two sides it was just tragedy for the Jewish people on an insane awful horrific level and people didn't even have the courtesy to message their Jewish and Israeli friends and ask them if they're okay that really that really shook my students. It was really, really, really heartbreaking to watch my students kind of feel so alone. I thank God, feel very blessed that they did find, um, seemed to find solace in, in our home and in our Chabad house. But I felt awful. People were asking me questions I didn't have answers to. Uh, students, and I've never thought I'd ever hear this in 2023, were asking if they think they're going to be singled out and called out of class. And like a holocaust style situation just for being jewish like she was just so scared like i, I just I, i've never seen fear like that and and you know in an adult's eyes she's a graduate student and she was just like i am terrified of anyone ever discovering that i'm a jew like i don't know what i'm gonna do like i'm so scared but i do think that i saw a really beautiful like reaction to that, which is more people coming to Shabbat dinners, more people coming to events, more people wanting to find community, more people wanting to learn one-on-one, more people wanting to know, like, oh, they hate me? Why? Like, can I know more about my Judaism? Because like, because if they're going to hate me for it, I might as well be embracing it. And, I, and, you know, I think the Jewish people are just so awesome like that. Like, people can be literally wanting us dead. And we're like, how can we be more Jewish? And I think that that's the most incredible, beautiful resilience of the Jewish people. And we definitely saw that. I definitely saw that amongst my students.
0: For me as a mom, hearing this, hearing these stories and thinking about my daughter going out into the world, I just want her to be somewhere where, where she feels safe. She's not the type of kid who wants to run out. And she's not a big fighter, debater. She just wants to live her life and study science and chemistry and bio and research something, something that she finds fascinating and wonderful. And she doesn't want to fight and she doesn't want to feel unsafe. And I just want her to be somewhere where she can just get a great education and have a great experience. And I don't know what
3: that means now. Right. I feel like it's just also such a shame because I think for a lot of people, a big part of the college experience is being exposed to all kinds of people and all kinds of views and the idea that that's too scary or too dangerous and you have to stay in some kind of little insular, safe, kind of protected environment. Like the idea, you know, going off and living in a dorm and living away from home and being exposed to all kinds of people and having to have maybe difficult conversations. Like this is all supposed to be part of the college experience and it should be. But at the same time, there needs to be a certain baseline of safety in order for, for to feel open to those experiences. Below yeah. a certain baseline, you're not open to it. You just need to retreat into something that feels safe. Yeah,
0: 100%. And it's something that I was excited for her to have at university. I wanted her to be in a place where she could she could connect with other feminists and other people who are standing up for civil rights and women's rights and lgbtq rights and and i was excited for her to have that experience and now i'm like but if that goes along with people hating jews and hating you for wearing a jewish star around your neck or your high necklace or whatever then like where do we go from here i want her to have an experience of being able to learn new things from new people and be exposed to friends and experiences that she hasn't had yet in her all girls modern orthodox high school that she loves and now I just want her to stay there forever but she is you know this is a whole other this is a whole other
1: situation when I went to grad school actually I I started grad school in 2014 so it was right after the war in Gaza, after the three boys were kidnapped and killed. Um, and that's that's when I started going to school. And I went to the CUNY Graduates Center. And I have a master's in Middle Eastern Studies. So I was at, this is a very activist school. And this is the Middle Eastern Studies Department. And at the time, this is when BDS resolutions were starting to be passed across campuses. Uh, and the CUNY... I believe it was a couple of years later, but the CUNY Graduate Center Student Union, I think that's what it was, also passed a BDS resolution. um, And that resolution actually was backed by students in my my classmates, students in my in my department. They're the ones who introduced and pushed for this resolution. Uh, And I remember at the time I was in touch with other Jewish students who were trying to organize around Opposing the resolution. it was very hard to do because the vote was scheduled for Friday night, which apparently was not a problem um Coincidence? I think not <laughs> yeah and so on on the one hand, there was like hostility in that sense, you know, where I would hear people in in class make comments about Jewish power and the history of Jewish power. I don't know just things like that that just a lot of misconceptions about Jewish history. but at the same time, I was. You know, I have a very, very Jewish name. My first name, Miriam, is is pretty common across different cultures, but my last name is very, very Jewish, unmistakably Jewish. Um, And when we would talk about our 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 research interests and our career backgrounds, I was interested in Jewish history. My career had always been in Jewish education, so I was really Jewy McJew, upfront, vocal, (laughs) loud, proud, you know, assertive and unapologetic. Not because I was like trying to be like in your face about it. I just And it was myself. And so I never really heard anything directed personally at me. I think at the time it was still rude to do that. And also this is grad school. So we were all in our late twenties, but I know that classmates of mine over the years mentioned, you know, either because they were kind of lefty. So people saw them as on their side, or they just didn't have Jewish sounding names. So they kind of like Asked as white, whatever it was, and they did hear some kind of ugly comments that just were never directed to me. Um, and I, it, it took me a while to to finish my degree because I was a working single mom, so it took me a while. So I was there for a long time. One thing I do want to say is, I've noticed, you know, a lot of people talk about if people are anti-Zionist, then they're anti-Semitic. Or I, I actually did notice kind of a distinction. I, I once took one class. Uh, It was a a class in post-colonialist theory. So it was very theory heavy. We did a lot of reading about a book a week and the class was set up as a seminar. So you come in, you do the reading at home, you come in, you talk about uh, the reading in class and there's no really lecture. The professor kind of directs the discussion by asking questions um, and you talk about the reading. And so this this is a class about post-colonialism. Theorists trying to understand what, you know, what happened and what does colonialism mean and all that very dense, lots of six syllable words. I remember at the time I had this once a week where I was learning Gemara Megillah and we had this this one discussion about the use of language by colonial powers and imperial powers and how they use or exploit um, indigenous languages, like Napoleon's use of Arabic when he conquers Egypt or invades Egypt, whatever it was, and the anxieties around that, and and the sugya I was learning at the time, like the bit of Talmud I was learning, was the anxiety about the the translation of the Torah into Greek, and how well, the rabbis were really worried about that. Um, and so the the anxieties are are really the same. It's like a weird
3: parallel in a way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was like really
1: interesting, and so I brought that up in class, and I was like, "Oh, this reminds me of this thing I'm learning in the Talmud." And the professor was really receptive to it. And um, and another thing that came up was how colonial powers had built all this infrastructure and kind of developed the places that they colonized. And then again, so yeah, I was learning the Chachamim were talking about the sages of the Talmud are talking about kind of the infrastructure pro- projects that the Romans had built. Like aqueducts and roads and Babe?
4: Yeah. How often do you think about the Roman Empire? Three times a day. There's
1: so much to think about. And one of the rabbis is like, Oh, look, look what the Romans have built. They've done some good things. And some of the other rabbis respond and say, Oh, whatever the Romans have built, they built for themselves. So again, this was like this very interesting parallel. Mm -hmm. That I noticed, and I mentioned in class. And again, my professor was really receptive to it. She thought it was interesting. She asked me for my citations. Um, And again, like this, you you were
3: the only Jewish person in the class.
1: I was the only Jewish person in the class. Okay. Yes. Uh, There's about 17 students in the class. And then at one point, the professor was talking about how a lot of the nationalist, the national liberation movements of the 60s, really failed at the project of nation building. And her theory was that a lot of world institutions like the World Bank that were supposed to be involved in nation building were kind of a new form of colonialism because they were paternalistic and exploitative. And she had a whole theory. And so, you know, I'd never heard this before and I thought it was interesting and I was thinking about it. And I said, well, what about the case of Israel? Zionism is the national liberation movement of the Jewish people. Ooh. And they succeeded. <laughs> Did that, back over. <laughs> That did not go over well, I can tell you. The entire class, 17 students and the professor, all all of them, every single one of them, started to yell at me. Wow. Not just like this, oh but like actually all raised their voice and told me that I was wrong and Zionism is not the national liberation movement of the Jewish people. It is a settler colonialist project and it is not the same thing at all. And I remember sitting there thinking like, Okay. Oh, I I overstepped and I violated like an orthodoxy here. Like there's a dogma here. Yeah, not allowed to talk about. It actually reminded me of being back in high school and asking uncomfortable heretical questions, and and the way similarly it made people feel very uncomfortable. That's um, such an interesting And I got backlash. Yeah, I have the same. Yeah. Thing. Like, oh, you know, I find that we're not to talk also, about that.
3: Yeah, where there there are. There are articles of faith, right? I mean, in in Judaism we literally call them the articles of faith, right? But there are things that are just like profoundly held tenets of a group that once you are in that group, I mean hopefully, ideally, right? Like they're they're good reasonable tenets and it's a way of having good conversations, but like there are t- places where it's like we're all supposed to agree on this. You're not really supposed to ask questions about these details, right? And I feel like that's what you did there. You used the words like violating an orthodoxy, right? Like we're all believers we're all on this team we're in this thing and like you're coming in with something outside of that and like
1: we shouldn't have to discuss that
3: here we shouldn't have to explain this to you right
1: yeah there were certain axioms that everybody takes for granted and i did not know because i was this nice from girl going to grad school were you trying to be provocative or you just not at all not at all i was genuinely trying to understand i did not i i was not an activist at the time this is like 2016 yeah i was just a mom who was working and trying to get a degree i i was just trying to learn i was like oh interesting problem so what
3: happened like i mean having everyone yell at you in the class i feel like that's a very i don't know intimidating scary moment like what happened after that
1: nothing I i thought that the professor would fail me i was like oh no I'm going to get an F in this class like she's going to hate me forever. And I can't afford to pay for another semester just because I failed because um, she doesn't like what I said about Israel. But but no, I I mean, I wasn't intimidated. I just was like, okay, next time I won't bring this up unless I'm ready to deal with everyone yelling at me. Like I don't necessarily. It's like yell
3: at me if you must. But don't give me a bad grade. Like that's the one thing I cannot
1: abide. It's very
0: Hermione, Miriam. Now.
3: If you two don't mind i'm going to bed before
2: either of you come up with another clever idea to get us killed or worse expelled
3: the worst (laughs) possible scenario i think that's something all of us here relate to a little bit um yeah but that is interesting that you're saying that this is like about 10 years ago there was a difference then in terms of not no one was attacking you or having issues with you at all for anything jewish right like you were able right. to bring up these examples and, and i have to say that this, this
1: professor was very accommodating like she knew i was a single mom and that i was working and whenever i needed an extension she there were, we had a paper that was due right before pesach and i had work deadlines i had to meet before the chag and i um I had to clean my house i had to do all these things and she understood and she gave me an extension of a few days like really incredibly accommodating you know, in in the best, and I think CUNY is really good at this, at serving, you know, non-traditional students, whatever that means. Yeah. Aside from the, you know, the, just the interpersonal discomfort of people yelling at you for saying something, and maybe I was incorrect, and maybe I wasn't, but just like that sh- shutting me down, I think it just makes for bad, for bad scholarship, right? Uh, here, this is supposed to be a place of freedom of inquiry and and skepticism, What I realized after, because I like kind of thought about it and I read a little bit about it, was Israel did have a lot of financial problems in the beginning. And then in the end, they accepted reparations from Germany Mm -hmm. uh, that helped Israel financially. And it was a huge debate in Israeli society. Menachem Begin was famously very against accepting reparations from Germany. He thought it was a way for Germany to kind of whitewash their, their guilt. And so this was like enormously controversial within Israeli society, but they did accept German reparations. And that was enormously helpful to helping Israel regain some like economic grounding. So what if, what if they had accept, and I don't know that this is the reason, right? Because th- this is not my expertise. Like I never did, a I never studied this. I just kind of like read a bit. Like what if, and I'm just positing as a hypothesis, it could be, I'm very wrong that the reason Israel succeeded where other national liberation movements failed is because of this model of reparations versus loans from, you know, mm. from the World Bank. And then you could say, oh, well, what do imperial powers owe to their formerly colonized countries, territories? Maybe they owe them reparations. It just would have been an interesting conversation. Yeah. That we never yeah got to true. have in class because they couldn't hear what I was saying. And right. it's it's entirely possible I'm wrong and that's not what it is. And right. Um, But I just when we shut things down and we label certain things as heretical, there's just we lose out on opportunities to learn things. On the one hand, there was very much this discomfort and hostility that was very real. But at the same time, as a Jewish person and just as a person in general, I did feel very supported at CUNY. I would say this is about 10 years ago, though. Right now, I feel like it's gotten more uncomfortable there. I don't know now that i would yeah well
3: that's so funny you say that right my sister's actually a student at cuny at brooklyn college right now and i've been talking to her you know throughout the last few months about her experience it does seem like one major thing that's changed is well a few things i think one is students being confronted or uh harassed or whatever not only when they express a specific view on israel that people might disagree with but just by their presence, right? Just like off the bat by having a visibly Jewish presence. The other thing I think is that because campuses tend to be this like hotbed of protest and activism and everyone just feeling the need to like express their views, there becomes this sort of escalation back and forth often, especially at a campus with a significant Jewish presence where the student Jewish students don't really feel the need to just kind of like, you know, cower and hide, but they wanna express themselves. And then I think unfortunately you can have this escalation that ends up just making day-to-day life, getting to class, hanging out with friends, doing your thing really difficult because there's this like really, really heightened tension just across the campus. I want to actually play a voice note that she sent me, um, just in her own words of what she's been experiencing. She says it better than I can. So I'll just play that for you now.
4: Hi, my name is Satora and I go to Brooklyn College. Um it's definitely been a really strange and like a different experience um like following october 7th when we came back to campus like a few days later i think um it was very strange to see people that i've seen walking around campus um suddenly showing so much hate um i think it was like the day or two days later um that we held a vigil on campus it was very public and like really in the middle of everything um but not loud and it wasn't trying to be like to get as much attention it was it was completely like quiet and just kind of very personal very focused on the death and mourning and um even though it was like that there were still protesters that came um, starting with a few then leading up to more and more um for like hours they were just cheering literally while people were like saying cottage and just reading names um which was really like disturbing to see um because like everything's usually just very normal and this was like the same place where we're like in school and it's um you know like just to see that hatred right there and then since then there were like protests like about once a week i think for the next like few months um and usually outside of campus, but then the last one they did like right on campus outside every single building. If you're walking in and out of pretty much you can't really like avoid it at that point because it was so like um in in the way of kind of art. Just you're moving around campus. You're you can't even avoid them at all if you need to go pretty much to any like building. Um but yeah, that was. Basically, and it was a weird experience because, like, I've never been in a place where um, you could see people that, like, hate us so much just, like, right there. Um, And, like, right next to us, and it could be classmates, it could be people I've seen or worked on or um, talked to before, and now, like, you see a very different side of them. It's so sad.
3: Yeah. It's really tough to hear, honestly.
0: How old is Sephora?
3: Um, I think she's 21. I, if I if I'm wrong, Sephora, and you're listening to this, I'm sorry. I just have so <laughs> many siblings. You should get it. <laughs> I think what one thing that this makes me think about, and I, I feel like a distinction between what Miriam, what we were talking about a minute ago, and what she's describing is, I think it it's kind of coincidental that when you talk about campus, you're really talking about two different things. You're talking about sort of like the world of academia as kind of an industry with professionals of all ages and people working there and the ideas and the the culture of academia. And you're also just talking about a place in which large groups of very young people live, right, and interact. And those happen to be co-occurring on a college campus. But I don't think those are the same things, right? Like we could discuss like, what is it about the culture of academia that's allowing or perpetuating these ideas? And then we can also discuss what is it about large groups of young people that makes them do bad things or good things sometimes but do extreme things right
1: young people have a lot of energy and they have a lot of power um and a lot of idealism and that can be a powerful thing either way right the the machis yahoo song famously youth is the engine of the world It's not, it's not good it's not bad it's just a fact right uh, and I'm really resistant to any way.
3: argument that is just like oh kids these days they're so terrible they you know they weren't you know we weren't like this back in the day this generation like I think those those arguments are so tired and boring and have literally been made by every single generation forever but about the next generation after them like the it does not interest me <gasps> whatsoever the youths the youths The youths! Oh, you know, like, Schmidt and New Girl? He's like, youths!
5: It's a horrible neighborhood, okay? There are youths everywhere.
3: Youths? Youths. Like, there's literally a quote from Socrates about how, like, kids these days are so terrible and disrespectful and lazy. And, like, every generation has said that about the next one. And, like, that that's that's garbage to me like i have no interest in those so like so
0: like boomers thinking that we can't afford to buy houses because we eat avocado toast and oat milk lattes that's like socrates started it
3: literally look look it up like yes i just think there are i mean in general like i'm a little skeptical about like arguments that are like oh this generation you know millennials are this and gen z are that because like i don't know it's a little bit more fuzzy to me i think but like I think it's more the state of being 19, 20, 21 years old is a specific state of being, right? You are becoming a person. You are becoming a person in the world. You have all this idealism. You have all this energy. You can do incredible things. Some of the most important revolutions and social movements have been led by really young people, right? Because they're the ones who are able to believe that the world can be different and better and actually like stand up to do something about it. Environmentalism
0: and the civil rights movement, the history of environmentalism started on campus. Like, it's an incredible yep. story. It's incredible what young people can do. And it's why Chabad houses on campus are such a big deal because this is this time of life when people are figuring themselves out and finding their way in a place outside of their parents' home. And what does life mean to them? And what are their choices mean to them? And who are they going to meet? And what choices are they going to make? And I met my husband when I was that age, and Mm -hmm. leaving home at 18 and going to New York, like, that was a really big thing for me. I felt safe, though, while I was doing it. And the idea that these kids right now are living in this high-stress, toxic environment of chronic stress beyond just finals and papers and needing to figure out a new way of time management because they're in college now, this is a different level of stress for these students. And I don't know how you're supposed to focus on school and your education when you're dealing with worrying about walking through the quad and what kind of protest is going on. And if people are going to be screaming death to Jews or getting mad at you for your Jewish star or your high necklace or your yarmulke.
3: Yeah, the ADL, just as like a d- illustration of this point, the ADL reports in the two months following October 7th, they had 400 400- anti-Semitic incidents reported to them uh, compared to 33 in the same time period a year before. Wow. So that is the level of uptick that we're talking about here. Does it say how many of those are on campus? Yeah, specifically campus. Oh, that is campus. campus. This conversation feels very fraught to me because it's unfortunate that there's been such an attack on education and on like the college experience from like kind of the anti-intellectual right, I would say, over the past few years. So it's, like, unfortunate to me that in some ways this this crisis feeds really neatly into their, like, oh, college is stupid. You go to college and you just come out like a brainwashed whatever. Like, it's unfortunate that this feeds into that, and I don't agree with them. I think there's a problem here that needs to be addressed. I don't think that, like, I'm rejecting the whole concept of education. Whenever people have tried to point out to me over the last few years or where I just read about it in the news, like, some kind of ridiculous, over-the-top kind of, like – Progressive hippy-dippy, like, oh, the students at Berkeley say that they can't eat tacos because it's cultural appropriation. Oh, the students at this campus want to, whatever, you know. And I always used to say a college campus is like a laboratory for social progress, right? They're running experiments all the time. They're thinking about ideas, about fairness and justice and all the, you know, inequities of history and all the relationships between marginalized groups and all those things. And they're testing out solutions. They're testing out ideas of progress. And like a lot of them are dumb and they don't take. And I think that's okay. I think that's fine. I think it's perfectly fine for students on a UC Berkeley campus to be like, what if uh, not eating tacos would fix racism? And everyone listens and goes, "Mm, no, that's stupid. We're not doing that. And that's, to me, that's totally fine. Like, that's actually how it should be because every once in a while they have a great idea and it takes and it can change the world, right? And a lot of the good things that we now take for granted that like have made people's lives better and made our ways of interacting with each other kinder and more just and more fair originated with young people being like, what if a woman could have a way to be referred to without indicating her marital status? What if I don't have to be, my my status as an adult in society doesn't have to be dictated by my marriage status? Like these basic ideas that were laughed at and derided in their time in exactly the same way. But again, a few of them that were good ideas, they stuck. So I'm not here for like, every progressive, every social justice-minded thing that every 19-year-old says on campus is deserving of like a massive four-day news cycle, hellabaloo, like I think that's really dumb. But when they're breaking the social contract of how to treat their fellow students and how to leave intellectual ideas where they belong in the classroom, how to treat people in like the most basic ways of of basic humanity and manners and, like kindness, I think that's where we need the schools to step in. And that's what's I think really disturbing here is not just that students are doing stupid things, but that the schools seem to not want to get involved. And as we so obviously famously saw in this congressional hearing and all the fallout from that, I think most of us watching that, we're just like, what is going on here? Why are they talking this way in this weird, almost like legalese, vague, being unwilling to say, you know, you know, say what's really going on. And Miriam, I know you like know a little bit more about the back, like the background here, like politically and legally. Can you explain what's going on here?
1: Yeah. So they sounded like they were going to give a deposition, right? It's a context dependent decision. I am asking
5: specifically calling for the genocide of Jews, does that constitute bullying or harassment? If it is directed and severe or pervasive, it is harassment. So the answer is yes. It is a context-dependent decision, Congresswoman. It's a context-dependent decision. That's your testimony today. Calling for the genocide of Jews is depending upon the context. That is not bullying or harassment. This is the easiest question to answer yes, Ms. McGill. And Dr. Gay, at Harvard, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Harvard's rules of bullying and harassment, yes or no? It can be, depending on the context. What's the context? Targeted as an individual, targeted at an individual. It's targeted at Jewish students, Jewish individuals.
3: Miriam, in your opinion, why why were the presidents responding in that, like, really legalistic, like, it depends on the context type of way?
1: So they were prepared by this white shoe law firm. The New York Times had an article about it. So I think they just prepared to answer in this very legal way as if it's a deposition when I think people wanted to hear a voice of um, moral clarity. So they just read the context very wrong. There actually is something going on here. And that's there's an important distinction legally between private schools and public universities. So public universities are actually part of the government. And so they must adhere to the legal standard of the First Amendment on free speech. Um, and private universities do not. Now, you would think universities care about free speech because they care about freedom of inquiry and skepticism and 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 all those things. And that needs necessitates, right? F- freedom of expression. Um, but they're not legally bound to the same way that public universities are. So
3: public universities legally are not allowed to limit speech. I mean, where, where's the line? No. There? So like-
1: So here's an example. This is a story people might remember in 2015, the University of Illinois had to had to settle with this professor Stephen Saleda for $800,000. Stephen Saleda was hired into, I think, the Indian Studies Department. So you can imagine a hotbed of post-colonialism. Hotbed sounds a little bit pejorative. I don't know that I needed to be so insulting. But just kind of that's that's where they would be talking about that, those kinds of ideas. And during the war of the 2014 war, he tweeted some Really ugly things about israel and and Bibi Netanyahu that, you know, people can disagree if they were anti-semitic. I, I think they were pretty anti-Semitic. The University of Illinois declined to continue with the the hiring. Um, and he sued that he was being discriminated on, against because of his speech. Um, and this is a violation of his of his free to, you know his first amendment rights and the university had to settle and so this is a real thing this is a real issue and universities must public universities must honor um and respect free speech the first first amendment rights private universities don't need to so if they say well we have other principles that we prioritize over free speech and so we don't accept this kind of speech because we want to foster other kinds of values, that that's acceptable just because it's a different legal framework. Some universities, though, in 2014, the the University of Chicago set out a a statement of, you know, a, a commitment to freedom of speech. It's called the Chicago Principles. And a lot of universities have signed on. So I believe MIT and the president of MIT was at present at the hearing. I believe MIT signed on to the Chicago Principles don't if i remember correctly i don't believe that harvard did and harvard actually comes pretty low on rankings of of freedom of speech on campus so there's <laughs> no, so there's there's a few things here just to recap there's um a, the difference between private and public universities and then also which is a legal thing and then there's also the the cultural commitment to freedom of speech which you can see if a university has signed on to the Chicago principle, so so there has been this history over the last decade of kind of this this so-called cancel culture, where you know professors were let go for not adhering to you know kind of the predominant ideas of of DEI diversity. What's the E diversity? Equity equity and inclusion. Um and there there are lots of stories about this about faculty who were let go because of of these kinds of stories. A really famous one is Nicholas Chris, Christakis from Yale. I think that was in 2015. Um so there there are lots of stories like that and universities that sign on to the Chicago principles they're kind of saying, well we don't want to be part of this kind of circus. We do want you know, we do want to foster a marketplace where people can share ideas and exchange ideas like
3: up to a point. Right. Because like the issue here with these you know, campuses now is not that they're not allowing people to express ideas, but that they're allowing harassment. Right. Even assault in some cases, vandalism. Right. Uh, you know, spray painting a swastika, I don't, I mean, maybe someone could say this is a free speech issue, but I, at some point it crosses into harassment, right? Well, we
1: all have to do harassment training for work, right? If you've got a corporate job, you, you have to do harassment training every year, sexual harassment, all kinds of harassment. From what I remember about my yearly sexual harassment training. Oh, I just
3: click straight through to the quiz at the end.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, you, you know, it's it's about a sustained environment. It's not that someone said something once, and you're you know, and you're like, oh, that made that one comment made me uncomfortable. Like mm-hmm. I didn't like that. It's right. It's a sustained hostile environment where it's uncomfortable to be there. The whole environment, right? It's repeated. It's, yeah. It's, but that, then again, like
3: repeated. a threat is
1: a threat, even if it's only once, right? right. And well, affects- a threat that's actionable
3: and right. and specific,
1: so, that's that's not free speech,
3: right? I feel like the stuff we're talking about right now with these campus incidents is not about whether a professor or a student stood up in class and said, you know, I don't believe Israel is, you know, legitimate or whatever. We're talking about pursuing and yelling at and harassing Jewish students. So yeah. I feel like regardless of the school's position on free speech, these incidents should fall outside the pale.
1: Yes. And so that's a really important Point. and that brings me to the next thing I wanted to say. and um, maybe we should have some uh, some drum rolls here because I'm about to say something nice about the <laughs> Trump administration. So in in 2019 Trump signed an executive order that allowed anti-Semitism to be considered an ethnic decision. So the the Civil Rights Act, yeah yes, it's a form of discrimination based on race, color, national origin. Uh, But so as long as Judaism is considered a religious issue, there is no protection against discrimination. So by expanding um, the definition of anti-Semitism to include kind of ethnic discrimination against Jews, that now accords protection under the Civil Rights Act to Jewish students on campus. At the time, when the Trump administration did this, there was a huge backlash on the left and they saw it as a racist, why? thing. Of like, oh, there's a dark history of Jews being considered a race. Oh, uh, okay. And so look, Trump is such a racist, which I think to be fair, I, I, I understand why someone would inherently see everything Trump does from a lens of bad faith, but I don't think this is necessary this deserve that um and the truth is that now because of this expanded protection, you mentioned that the ADL put out this this survey to you know to collect stories of anti-Semitism they put out a hotline uh, to collect stories of anti-Semitism from students and they have these these 400 stories now they have cases where they can actually, initiate lawsuits against universities for harassment and they have lawyers ready to take up these cases. Do you have cases on this already?
5: Do we ever? How many? So we set up a legal hotline because we were hearing about students. So, you know, what, let's put out a hotline. We'll make it easy for people to submit potential cases to us in less than a month. We have 375 cases have been submitted. By the way, across 162 campuses,
1: now obviously they will have to pick the right cases. You don't want to pick the case where someone once said a thing that wasn't nice. These cases need to prove a pattern of harassment and hostility and I, they they exist, right? They have all these cases ready to go. There is kind of this this darkness going on and it's it's very easy to look around and feel like things are dark and bleak, but for all that this reminds us of things that that used to be and we'll we'll talk about the dark history of of discrimination against Jews on campus. We do still have rights in the United States and we do still have the ability to sue for our rights. You know, there are organizations like the ADL that will do that.
3: Yeah. So there really is a dark history here. I feel like I was not even so aware even though it's actually in my own family stories. So this has always been a story in our family lore. So my great-grandfather, my mother's uh, mother's father attended Harvard. Graduated. Um, he attended Harvard, I believe, in 1918. He happened to get swept up. He was just, you know, an ordinary guy, but he happened to get swept up in this kind of dramatic story of like campus anti-Semitism and Harvard, and like a lot of things with like weird resonance to what we're seeing today. So, my grandfather's name was Victor. Sorry, my great grandfather's name was Victor Kramer, and he was in 1922. He was on a train. And he overheard, he was not actually a part of this conversation, but he overheard the president of Harvard at the time, a man named A. Lawrence Lowell, talking about the sort of problem of Jews at Harvard, the fact that at that time, Jews consisted of about 25% of the, of the class at Harvard. And he was talking about his plan to limit the number of Jews at Harvard, and then started talking about how American Jews are not assimilating well enough and the way that they're deciding to remain kind of a people apart will only increase the anti-Semitism in the country. And remember, this is the 20s. So things are starting to kind of take a turn in Europe, but you know, no one obviously knows where it's going to go in the coming decades. This president of Harvard is just talking openly on a train car about how if American Jews continue to insist to be uh, insist on being their own thing and not merging into American life and not intermarrying and not completely integrating into society. The prejudice against them against them is going to grow and get worse. And he says a Jew cannot be an American because to be an American one must be that and nothing else. And he predicts that like within twenty years you're going to see pogroms and violence and bloodshed on American soil if the if the American Jews continue to insist on being uh, separate. So my great-grandfather overhears this conversation. And very shortly afterwards, a few weeks later, he recounted it to a New York Times reporter who then wrote an article about it. And at first, uh, the president of Harvard denied this, said that he you know, would never say anything like that. But the fact was that he then, there was this plan at the time to actually limit the number of Jews. So it, I guess it became harder for him to deny because here he was actively discriminating against Jews. They started to require, instead of just like test scores and grades, they started to require these like personality based assessments, so character based. So they would ask people their race, their color, their religion. And if they didn't respond or if they didn't, you know, wasn't a clear answer, they would also ask them things like, Did your parents ever change your name? So that they might know if there was like a Jewish name kind of hidden in their background. And they would even, you know, they'd ask for references and things like that. They would even go so far as to classify based on the application. Uh, they had a system where they'd classify people as J1, which was definitely Jewish, J2, probably Jewish, or J3, possibly Jewish. So they basically wanted to, without coming right out and saying, like, we want, don't want Jews at Harvard, they wanted to just, like, subtly ease down the number over time to kind of just, like, bring back the, you know, the balance of, of I guess, like, the, the group that that are, you know, making up the student body. But it's it's kind of shocking to think about how, a lot of the debates we're having right now about college applications and admissions and really all these like very contemporary issues. I mean, this stuff goes back literally a hundred years. It's, it's kind of, it's, it's kind of a strange, almost like a spooky like mirror image to what we're dealing with today.
1: A lot of how our college application works now actually develops in this time, right? The, all of these things about a personal essay and references, everything about how college admissions works now develops at this time of quotas at the Ivies in order to limit the number of Jews who attend. And it's, it's during this time when Jews are increasingly attending the Ivies and And they want to limit the number of Jews that they start talking about diversity. People don't realize that diversity is actually much older than the civil rights movement. It's it's from this era of wanting to not have so many Jews on campus. And they're like, oh, well, we we want to we want to increase geographic diversity. So when they said diversity back then, they just meant like white kids. They meant white kids who are not from, like, the East Coast. They're like, let's get some, like, good old farm boys, right? Like, other white boys, obviously. <laughs> like that but like, like that
3: classic line from 30 Rock. The
1: television
6: audience doesn't want your elitist East Coast alternative intellectual left wing. Just, just
3: say Jewish. This is taking forever.
0: It's in the West Wing too. the first episode of the West Wing. There's this whole thing that happens about this this woman from the Christian right says this thing about Josh and Toby she says, their New York sense of humor.
4: It was only a matter of time with you, Josh. Yeah. That New York sense of humor was just a Mary, little... Mary, Reverend, no please, to... they think they're so much smarter. They think it's smart talk, but nobody else does.
6: I'm actually from Connecticut, but that's neither here nor there. The, the, the point is, Mary, I... She did... meant Jewish. What she said, New York sense of humor. She was talking about you and me. You know what, Toby, let's not even go there
1: there's yeah. this other show even so ted do- cruz going new york values and it's like oh hey what's up <laughs> yeah
3: <laughs> we could swap cop pop culture references all night but there's this other show that no one's ever watched called um trial and error it's a hilarious weird show that no my one- friend sees. is obsessed with okay, trial and so error comes- okay
0: shout out to my friend jamie bliss i don't know if you're listening but here is another friend of mine who's obsessed with trial and error. His we met the creator from at this Hanukkah party we went to. That's she so had to, she was like, I have to go talk to him. I've been I I'm private. I DM'd him to try and get a job, and he was like, If we get another season, I'll call you. with this whole thing, and we met him at the Hanukkah party. And you met the guy from Trial and Error. We met the head writer of Trial and Error at this Hanukkah party oh we went God. to for I Jews in Hollywood, kept- where I also when I met Yaël Groblas, like it was this like Jews in Hollywood Hanukkah party.
3: Oh, sure. You're so cool. Uh, So (laughs) in trial and error, this lawyer comes from New York to this, like, small town. And people keep saying to him, like, you're from New York?
4: Hi, Josh Siegel, defense counsel. I was expecting someone older. I'm just prepping the case. My boss, Mr. Mankiewicz, will be down here for the actual trial.
6: But you are, in fact, Northeastern. Yeah, I'm I'm from New York. And your parents, they're also Mm Northeasterns?
4: Ah, yes, my father. Was born Northeastern and my mother is from Arizona, but she converted to Northeastern. Ism. Very good, good hands. Shalom.
3: People have been trying to not so subtly suss out who's Jewish and put some kind of limitations, keep us under control for a very, very long time. And I feel like.
1: You know, Tablet Magazine had a phenomenal podcast about this, well well included in the show notes called Gate Crashers. And I think there are six episodes and each episode talks about the history of quotas at a different Ivy League university. And the stories are wild.
0: I wanted to pop in here with just a little bit of background on the history of Jewish quotas on college campuses in case you don't listen to the six episodes of the podcast Miriam just mentioned. In the early 20th century, Jewish immigrants who always had a culture that valued education understood that university was the path for social mobility. By the 1910s, City College in New York City where Devorah's grandfather went, by the way, was over 80% Jewish. By the 1920s, as American culture, broadly speaking, became more xenophobic and isolationist, many universities began to set limits on how many Jews they would accept. There might not have been an official set quota, but colleges introduced new measures in their admissions process, and Jewish enrollment began to drop. One very dramatic example is Columbia University, where Jewish enrollment fell from 40% to 22% in a two-year period. That's a little script Miriam wrote for me so that I could just... Give you a little bit of background on the history of jewish quotas okay back to the show
1: like columbia university when they realized that they were having so many jews apply and attend they created a satellite campus in brooklyn where they sent all their jewish students so that their Whoa. jewish students not come to columbia like these stories are wild like the columbia ghetto yeah basically they like created this like jewish silo so That's these wild. stories are like real a lot of universities have not properly even addressed these stories this history or confronted it you know over the last few decades there's been a lot of a lot of very high jewish enrollment at at schools like i think Um, it was kind
3: of a heyday like 20 30 years ago yeah yeah
1: like in the 90s when i I talked to like colleagues who went to places like harvard in the 90s and there were like lots of jews it was like bustling since then, my mom declined
0: when my mom was at Harvard in this in the early seventies, early mid seventies, there were twenty five or thirty percent Jews. Like
3: there were a lot of Jewish kids.
1: Yeah, it's and that's so funny because
3: my mom was telling me that she went to Yale because Harvard and Princeton were seen as like WASPy, <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> Yale was the Jewish school. That's funny. Oh, that's
1: so interesting. It was the Jewish guess, like yeah. it? It shifts.
3: It shifted over time, probably. Yeah. You know. Okay. So all of this conversation is sort of. Wrapping around the idea of why colleges have this, like, history about, you know, weird relationship with the Jewish population and why the sort of academia, ideas about free speech and things like that that are putting all kinds of, like, weird strings attached on how they can control the actions of these students who are harassing, attacking, etc., the Jewish students on campus. But none of this really answers to me the core question of, like what's going on with these kids, right? Like, these are mostly nice kids from nice families, right? These are kids who want to go on to be doctors and lawyers and politicians. And I mean, especially when you're talking about the Ivies, right? Like, these are kids with ambition and drive and like, they're smart and they, they, for the most part, want to make the world a better place, right? Why are they hurting their fellow students? Like, what is it that's going on this fever that we keep talking about, right? Like, what is happening here? Like, I don't buy a narrative where, like, there's some kind of, like, evil, like, anti-Semitic spark inside of them that's just, like, bursting out, and that's just, like, the nature of the world. Like, I don't believe in that, really, I guess, or I don't want to. I need another explanation for, like, why it is that Nice kids are being so mean. I mean, this sounds like very kindergarten level, but honestly, I think it comes down to this in some way. Like, yes, you disagree with Israel, you're mad at Israel or something, but like you're you're screaming at your fellow student in their face or you're smashing a window or you're graffitiing a shoal or a Chabad house, or whatever. You are you know, there were so many campus talking about how they couldn't leave their menorahs unattended because they'd be graffitied or broken.
6: You know what happens to the menorah? After everyone leaves the yard, we're going to pack it up. We have to hide it somewhere. The university, since the first Hanukkah, would not allow us to keep this menorah here overnight because there's fear that it'll be vandalized. Think about that. We're trying to fix the world, the future leaders of the world. On our campus, in the shadow of Widener Library, we in the Jewish community are instructed, we'll let you have the menorah, you made your point, okay? Pack it up. Don't leave it out overnight. Because there will be criminal activity, we fear, and it won't look good. You know when when change is going to happen on this campus? When we don't have to pack up the menorah.
3: When you're doing those things, like, what What is going on in those kids' minds? That's what I'm trying to understand. I don't know. It's very disturbing
0: to me that the hatred of Jews on campuses is not new. And I don't know why it just continues to be like the it thing. Like, I don't know why it's cool. But even in pre-Nazi Germany, there's this piece, University and the Rise of Hitler on cambridge.org, Despite the presence of anti-intellectualism in the Nazi movement, we find a great deal of enthusiasm for Adolf Hitler in German universities. Student organizations had often turned Nazi even before Hitler rose to power, and the bulk of the faculty applauded Hitler's rise in 1933. Viewed from another angle, we search almost in vain for evidence of opposition to the regime within the universities. The best known example, perhaps, is that of the White Rose at the University of Munich, a courageous but small and ineffectual group of protesters to be considered. There
3: there is a Broadway show coming out about this group. I'm super excited about it. It's called White Rose the Musical. It's coming onto Broadway later this month, actually. We can really learn everything from Broadway. Everything's in Broadway. I (laughs) I love it. Yeah.
0: Hamilton,
3: and Parade,
1: and White Rose the Musical, we'll just get everything we need. I have to say this is also not, I mean, you you brought an example that's not an American, not from the American context, and I can say um, this is also true in Iran. I remember reading an article, it's a chapter actually in the book Esther's Children, which I think most Iranian Jewish homes probably own. It's a beautiful anthology of essays about Iranian Jewish history, um, beautiful, beautiful photos of family photos, photos of costumes, of of sacred spaces like synagogues. Um, just documents, like really, really incredible. My brother got it as a bar mitzvah gift from my great uncle, and I appropriated it for myself. <laughs> so I have the book, uh, and they have a, it. I colonized it. I, <laughs> it's in my home, on my bookshelf. I look at it a lot. Um, and there's a chapter there about. Political life uh, in the 20th century, um, and the author describes what the environment was like on campus in the second half, right before the revolution. So in the in the 60s in Iran, um, and she describes how a lot of Jews, young Iranian Jews, were drawn to communism and radical politics, which actually was true in general throughout the Middle East. There are uh, young Jews in in um, in Egypt, in Iraq, in Morocco. Um, just young Jews were drawn to communist politics. For, for lots of reasons, and also in pre-war Europe too, right? And a lot of this very hard left became very closely aligned with, with Palestine, Palestinian issues, um, a lot of young radicals trained in Palestinian camps. And so it became this place where there were swastikas everywhere on campus in Iran, oh, wow. and young Jews who became involved in this kind of lefty politics that was dominant on campus really had to kind of erase their Jewish cultural and religious identity. And we see that
3: happening here, t- you know, today also. I have to say, though, I mean, I know we're obviously like focusing on this sort of like left-leaning, you know, c- campus left politics anti-Semitism because it's real, and it's a problem. And I think it's a it feels more of like a betrayal to me. And it feels more surprising and disappointing to me. I do not want to pretend for a second that that is the one and only place where we're seeing anti-Semitism right now today, uh the day that we're recording this, um this story with the tunnel under seven seventy. I been can't like stop
0: thinking about the it main I, character I'm... of the
3: internet. And it's not just the story itself. I just we don't need to go into it. Like that's not what we're talking about right now. Although it's another great example of young people being insane. It's wild, and these kids need a basketball team. Yes, but since the story broke, the extreme and unabashed anti-Semitism that has flooded the internet, specifically Twitter, far right wing, and this is these are openly right wing. I've clicked on every bio, and it's like MAGA christ you know it's 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 christian it's it's trump supporting it's super super right-wing including a actual candidate for senate who is spreading some of these insane conspiracy theories about like the creepy blood libel things that are going on in these tunnels supposedly and all this creepy stuff and i just want to say like the fact that the left-leaning anti-semitic young people are in college and the right-leaning anti-semitic young people are on twitter doesn't make one better than the other they're both bad like let's not pretend that this is like they're just gathering in different spaces that's really the only difference I'm And then
1: they meet they meet they always meet and they, they meet. meet and so a lot middle. of these
3: a lot of these white nationalist anti-semitic twitter accounts have actually rebranded as pro-palestine and they have put palestinian flags in their bios but if you scroll down they're white nationalists that always have been they're they're quoting nick fuentes they're quoting all these big white nationalists Um, And that's that's who they are and it's what they stand for. But they've realized that right now they can they can say almost anything about Jews. I mean, the stuff I saw today, I was like, I have survived on Twitter since October 7th, barely hanging on for dear life. Today might be the day I bleach my eyeballs like I (laughs) not believe what I was reading. I'm not discrediting anything that we're saying here. I'm just pointing out that like, our focus right now is on kids at Harvard, because they're the kids that we would think would know better. Right, yeah. They're the they're the people who we want to think of as like smart and thoughtful and reasonable, but there is an army of other people out there, and like it's coming from both sides here, and that is like the one thing, like handshake meme. That is the one thing they agree on, you know.
1: Anyway, that's a little bit classist of you, actually, to assume that because somebody's at Harvard, they know better than someone who's like you're right, you know, like. Just having access to education doesn't make anybody morally superior in any way. Having that kind of privilege to know, you know, to have access to go to university to apply. These things don't make anybody morally better than anybody else. And I don't think we should assume that good faith of like, well, I think they're well-intentioned for one group of people over the other. At the end of the day, I think, right, like what's that... Yeah, kendy what's he what's he always say like either you're anti-racist or you're not anti-racist i don't agree yeah. with his analysis but like if you're anti-semitic you're anti-semitic like i don't yeah, really know i think you're right. you're right i think you're right um, i guess it's
3: more of a personal disappointment because these are people who i align with on other issues i think that's more what it is but i think you're right it's you feel not like they I would expect... be
1: your allies and so right it feels like it's personal... not that
3: i'm looking for like morality necessarily although like I guess as a person who loves education and loves learning like my hope would be that like education creates morality like I don't think it's true I think unfortunately it's often not true but like to me it feels true because to me when I expose myself when I read when I read literature when I learn history these things make me feel empathy for people who are not like myself and I I like feel like that is the way to get to that place, to see other people as as real and as human, as mattering. And to so, like in my mind, I guess, like my hope would be people on, you know, being a student, being on campus, learning, being exposed to different ideas would like help you on that journey. But like there's there's actually an article that I that I keep, you know, I've read and I've shared with other people. And I, and I don't agree with all of it at all, but I do think that it it made me realize like pinpoint a little bit maybe what is going on here. That is like failing my maybe very idealistic view of what it is to be educated. And it was talking about how essentially sort of laying out a scenario where for years already.
1: Wait, who wrote the article?
3: Uh, so John Haight wrote a book called The Coddling of the American Mind. And I have not read this book, so it's not an endorsement. I read a summary of it that I think I agreed with some and not some pieces and not others. He sort of describes it. And this is my my metaphor, not his, but like this very dry field, like for for years, there's been this creation of a situation on college campuses that is basically like a dry, grassy field ready for one spark to light the whole thing up on fire, right? So you're creating a scenario that is like perfect conditions for something to explode. And he talks about all the different, what he considers to be all the different conditions that have led us to this place. And I think the one that really struck me was people have talked a lot about identity politics over the last few years, people sort of identifying as or focusing a lot on like the things about their identity that are marginalized or different or give them privilege or don't give them privilege, et cetera. And like that's something people, you know, have all kinds of opinions on. But he says there's basically, you can have identity politics that he calls common humanity identity politics. So, seeing us as kind of, we're all human and we're all in it together, that there are big problems that we have to face together. And your goal as someone who is espousing this is to draw people in to help tackle the issue together. And you're not pitting one group against another, you're sort of seeing us as united. And then the other one would be the common enemy. And there the emphasis is much more on, there's this enemy out there, there's someone out there that we're fighting against. And the emphasis is on the against rather than on the together. And I think there's a little bit like when you're a common common humanity version of things, you're still fighting against some sort of enemy because there is a problem you're tackling. And there are going to be people who are the representations of that problem. So you're still going to be fighting, whether it's, you know, he talks about the civil rights movement, right? And like that was very much a common humanity approach.
1: Yeah, the the civil rights movement is a great example of this common humanity narrative because Martin Luther King Jr. was was really great at that and his famous I have a dream speech. I
6: still have a dream. Yes. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed Will they be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood? I have a dream.
1: I was just thinking about it because I was helping my son with a project on, on the 60s, and he references it there. He really calls upon the you know the civic ethos of the United States, and he makes this argument to the American people that these are our shared values, and to live out American values, we need to extend the same rights to Black people in America. That's It, it was a, a master class in this kind of, common humanity ethos.
3: Yeah, that's a really uh, that's a really good example. And then on the common enemy side, there's very much this emphasis on separating people. Are they on the good team or the bad team, right? It's very polar, right? Like there's there's just two, there's only two ways of being and you are basically, as a person participating in this, your goal is to like belong to the good team. And this is something we've talked about before here when we found like these, you know, statements and and um, social media posts by young Jewish people who were raised in Zionist families that essentially were like, I'm rejecting Zionism, but not for any ideological reason, but because it doesn't seem to put me on the good team. I want to be on the team. I want to be on the side of all the people that I generally look up to and consider to be like quote unquote, the good guys. And I don't really understand why Zionism no longer fits into their agenda. But since they say it doesn't, then I like I take their word for it, essentially, right? Right. And so So
1: we like dial up tribalism.
3: Yeah, so that's the idea is like, there is a natural human instinct towards tribalism. There's a natural cognitive instinct towards like this kind of binary thinking in and out, and like, same and other. And the danger and the thing that's been going on and like, It's sort of understandable how this arose if you look over the last 10 years at like these really intense political battles and all the things that were going on in the world. It's a little understandable that that developed, like there does seem to be this extreme polarity in our politics and our culture. So it felt at times like we were the good guys and the bad guys, like there there is a feeling of that. But the danger of leaning into it, especially on campus with university and professors who had the option of pushing back, right? They had the option of saying, although it feels so polarized and it feels so binary in the world right now and it's understandable to feel that way, we're going to push back against that instinct as hard as possible because that is a natural instinct and to lean further that way is not a helpful thing. It's not going to get us closer to our goals. It's not going to draw more people into whatever the mission is. And ultimately, he argues, and this is the part I agree with, it creates the situation that's really ripe, that when someone is physically in front of you that you have been taught to see as an enemy, and that thinking is extremely broad of who counts in that category, the anger and all this pent-up tension and rage that you've been building towards this quote-unquote other side is just going to spill over. And if that's a kid with a yamaka, it's not that you're like genuinely sitting down and being like, These are my values. My value is that I think that a kid with a yarmulke should be attacked. But you're just seeing everything in this like you're with us or you're against us type of light. And basically, once you get there, it's really hard to pull back. And then we have all these like all the fuel on the fire, right? The fact that they're young and so intense, you know, already have such intense feeling. The fact that they're in groups and groups add to people's, you know, inability to think clearly. You have all these like Factors that are just making the situation more extreme, but you've also have this environment that's been, like, trending towards this, like, one team or the other mindset for for decades, really. I think that it's a
0: big question of why is it that Jewish people are seen as the other always? Why are right. we really good the yeah. other side? Yeah. And why do we see so consistently this framework that we hate the Jews and that's okay. And even more, it's
1: actually cool. Dara Horn talks about that in her book, People Love Dead Jews. In case you couldn't tell, all of us on this podcast love Dara Horn. I'm like the biggest fangirl. She talks about how Jews are the ultimate countercultural group, where we always stand in opposition to the values of the hegemony we have our own values president lowell from harvard was like you have to give that up stop being so countercultural right and i think that frightens people like we're not afraid to be the other maybe that's like also a lesson to jews who feel like they should erase intrinsic parts of themselves to fit in we have something valuable and you you should know what that is i think but,
3: you know it's so weird because like I feel like the dominant narrative has been like appreciating difference. I mean, there's, I I could say as like a parent, right, of little kids, like the number of children's books that are published by like social justice minded publishers, they're literally just about, we are all different. And that's okay. That is literally like the big narrative, right? Why is this type of difference different than all the other types of difference? Manish dana.
1: That's a really good question. I don't know.
3: I don't know and I don't like it. And I
1: don't and know what to do for my daughter. <laughs> where yeah. where where is she supposed to go? To Gosh how does she oh, feel wait, about, all this? about the ivies she could go there are lots of schools in the united states the ivies are like these few schools i know i know i know you, I know, I know. you can I get know. a perfectly good education and not deal with people who hate you i know but, she but can. i don't it's think just,
3: it's true that this is just an ivies issue i think it's like yeah no Ivys it's not attention it is because because not like, just
0: an ivies issue it is shocking sure. at the ivies because you'd think that at the ivies where these kids are so smart that they have to get in like Not necessarily are they morally superior, but they are smart to get into these schools and they are not necessarily rich because the need based aid at Ivy Leagues is better than any other school with possibly the exception of Yeshiva University. The endowment at Harvard is so incredible that you can go for like less than you can go to a state school because the need-based aid is so phenomenal. So this is not just a classist thing. There are kids going to Harvard who are really not making tons of money in their families and they can go for like $8,000 a year, all included for need-based or less. If you at Harvard in particular, if you get into Harvard, they basically say, we will make it work. If your family makes Mm -hmm. under eighty thousand dollars a year, you will go for free. Wow,
1: that's really cool. Actually, it is. I don't think this is a problem. But now it's like, but like, you're probably right. I mean, like, CUNY is not an Ivy, right? I think it's it's just
3: that they're going to be attention because they're like the they're the IVs, right? They're the schools that kind of represent. They're very representational, and also because those are the students who, again, they're going to go on to be the like future leaders. So I think people are paying more attention to them as people. They are. Um, like, it, it came up because we were talking about the way that these students are behaving. And someone pointed out to me how a lot of these students, you know, when you hear stories, like, Miriam, you were talking about before about, like, you know, radicals on campus in Iran or other places, these were radicals. These were people who were planning to spend their lives as, like, political activists and radicals and things like that. But the students that we're talking about here are not that. They are planning to go on to be lawyers and doctors, Right. They want to go work for law firms. They, for the most part, are not looking for the kind of lifestyle and the kind of career choices that go well with having like assault on your record, you know? Like famously, this this was like one of the first stories that came out when this wave first started. The student at NYU had posted uh, right, you know, right after October 7th, basically saying like whatever happens, whatever happens in Israel, it is all Israel's fault. They are to blame because of their treatment and all that and was was pressed about this in the media and all that and and because the student was um was president of the student bar association a pretty prominent student um and really like refused to back down from this like pretty incendiary statement and eventually basically was rejected from the law firm where they had already been accepted as a incoming you know new new grad employee and had already interned and this this you know top law firm rescinded the job offer and At the same time, we're seeing, you know, uh, top donors to a lot of major schools, top finance firms and other kind of really big corporations pulling back funding, pulling back donations, things like that. There are consequences to this behavior that I I don't know that the students who are participating in it are really thinking through, like, you want to go work at like in corporate law, you want to go work in corporate finance on Wall Street, like these things don't match. Like, you can't have a record as a terrorist. You can't have a record as a person with hate crime charges against you. I don't know what they're thinking,
1: really. Like, it's it's very strange to me. That's a good point. I, I didn't consider that, actually. I think they don't realize how out of step they are. I think they think that that's what the dominant thought is. They think this is just what everyone thinks i don't think they're thinking that i want to go work in this industry in a city where that industry is dominated by jews and they might not like what i said well that's kind of
3: the paradox though right because like if jews in these industries use their muscle and enforce consequences then it it reflects badly on them because it reinforces anti-semitic stereotypes right about jewish power on the other hand, it's a good thing that the Jewish community is not as vulnerable as it was 100 years ago and has more options when things are done when when things happen like you're talking about lawsuits and other kind of legal action there are more we we have more ability to stand up for ourselves in various ways as a community stand up for each other most importantly than we did a hundred years ago. And I think that's like when people are talking about how like the 2020s are feeling eerily like the 1920s and how that feels really scary for us. I think we are situated very differently in this country than we were before. And I think we, it's always scary to use power that we have because our biggest accusation is always having too much power. (laughs) But on the other hand, like, we don't have to hire people with hate crime charges against them we don't have to allow them to walk around in society like they haven't done anything if they aren't willing you know these are college students they're young maybe they'll see the error of their ways and i'm I'm all for that but like if they're unwilling to do that we don't have to just let that slide and let them become politicians and leaders of industry yeah I'm curious what your daughter thinks about all of this. You said she's a junior, right? So she's probably talking to her friends and thinking yes. about college. Like, what's what's her take? Yeah. So she's
0: a junior, and she's going to be starting the application process in the fall. She sent me a voice note. So here it is.
6: As a student who is, like, thinking of applying to colleges, like, I'm going to be applying to colleges next fall, and I see all the seniors applying and everything – um it's scary it's definitely not something that was previously thought about in my brain as much like it was like okay choose colleges for all the normal reasons you get college the only jewish thing was like i need kosher food so i have to go somewhere where there's kosher food and now it's different it's also like somewhere where there's an active Jewish community that I don't feel unsafe because if there's kosher food but there's like three Jewish people then it's unsafe because you don't have a good support system the support system is like is now like way even more important and obviously it was important before but it's now um it's now a very very big part of it for me and the Jewish community that is sympathizing with all this on the same campus is a big part, because then we can stand together. But if there's only one person, then it's not really. And it's very, it feels, it's definitely a concept to think about. Do you, are you going to a college where they're just kind of being moderate about it and not saying anything specifically? Or do you go to a college where they're saying, yes, Jews? Like it's not, it's, it's. It's scary, and it's a part of the discussion. And it's like, well, it's a good college, but like, there's a girl in my in a senior right now who's going to Harvard, and she's going to Harvard, and she's going there in spite of the fact that of all the anti-Semitism, like, partially, well, partially because she wants to go, and partially because of that. And there are some people who will do that and will go in spite of, um, and I'm not that person. I'm gonna go somewhere where I feel safe and supported, and that I um and so it's a very different discussion but it's like completely up to the person are they are they that person who's going to be the person who stands up to anti-semitism on their campus or are they going to go to a moderate campus where they don't have to worry about all this anti-semitism and they can stand up without being afraid I think the standing up for yourself without being afraid is a big part of it because it doesn't matter what college you go to, you still want to be able to stand up for Judaism because there's still like, there's anti-Semitism everywhere. So obviously you want to advocate for Judaism, but it's, are you going to do that while being afraid or while not being afraid? And some people want to do it, um, while they're afraid. They want to, they want to go to the places where people are afraid and they want to make it better for them. And it's, there's a lot to think about, so
0: she put it that way. She sent me that from school so you can hear all the background noise.
3: Wow. From- no, but there's something – I mean, it's sad, but there's also something really incredible about the way she's, like, grappling with this, right? Like, do you retreat to safety? Do you hold yourself out? The idea that, like, you go where it's unsafe to make it safe. Like, these are the big questions of yeah. – being a person, being a Jew in this world. And like, here she is in high school and she's like really thinking so thoughtfully about them. It's it's kind of amazing.
0: Yeah, and it's, it's so interesting to me the way she talks about it in terms of making decisions around feeling safe, but also that some kids are making the decision and knowing that they might feel afraid, but that that's okay, too. And I think it's important to, to acknowledge that, that you don't have to make decisions out of fear. My mom used to say that she used to say not to make decisions out of fear, which is funny, because she was a pretty anxious person. So maybe that's why she knew. But it's so interesting to me that she's talking about it in this way. And her focus really, it's on feeling safe. And what fear means to her and what safety means for her and it's just it's all a big conversation for for all these kids right now and it's not something i had to think about when i was a junior in high school i was just like oh where do i want to go where can i get in what do i want to do like it's a very different conversation for her and her friends right now and her college counselor is dealing with it and
1: helping them and They all are, they're all just trying to figure it out. I think in many ways, students like your daughter and like our kids who were raised with very, very strong Jewish identities and not just a sense of Jewishness, but actually are very educated in what it means to be Jewish, how to practice as a Jew, the history, and the experiences of Jews, Jewish texts, Jewish values, Jewish intellectual thought, right? I think that inoculates you a little bit from the anti-Semitism. I know I've been having conversations with friends in the last few years about the rise in anti-Semitism in general. And remember this comes way before October 7th, right? Even before COVID, there were like all these attacks against Jews. As someone who grew up visibly Jewish in a visibly Jewish community in Brooklyn, and central Brooklyn, anti-Semitism and even violent anti-Semitism was just like always a fact of my life. I never felt like angst about it it just was a thing and it was never threatening it was threatening in terms of physical safety sometimes but never in terms of like what's my place in the world right i was very comfortable in my jewishness because i i i grew up very jewish um and nobody was able to threaten that or take that away from me yes maybe anti-semitism is rising it's falling whatever it's doing my sense of self as a jew was never defined or determined by an outside hater and then when I talk to friends who did not grow up the same way, it is very threatening for them because they felt that they they had this certain place in American society and suddenly that was very fragile and very tenuous. and and it, it was frightening. It was frightening to feel like things are suddenly unstable. Uh, and they didn't have this sense of themselves as as a Jew that was as as strong to fall back on, right? So, I think that wherever your daughter goes, I think you've educated her in a way. and just from the stories that you've you've shared about her, how much she loves to learn and how she, you know, thinks deeply about her values um as a jew, I, I think I think you've raised her well, and she'll be able to take her place in the world wherever she goes and she'll she'll be proud and she'll be strong like you've given her roots, you know she'll wherever she is she'll be she'll be strong, thank
0: you. I hope so.
1: But I want her to be safe too. I know. I want her to be safe too. Yeah, she should be safe.
0: So that's our episode. If you or a loved one is applying to college right now or in college right now, we really wish you the best and just a lot of peace and comfort and clarity about all the decisions you're making because they're not easy. We hope that the anti-semitism on campus and all around the world just stops really really soon if you want to reach us if you have comments or questions or want to just tell us what you thought you can find us on instagram at voice.notes.podcast or on gmail voicenotespodcast18 at gmail.com this podcast was produced by us edited by me and thank you to Nadar for our intro and outro music Thank you.